Blog Talk Radio. Folks, and welcome to the Eastern Airlines Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the Leapa Radio Hour. Brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern Captain and producer of the show, and We hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now let's get the show in the air. Wears glasses. I, 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 honey, I, no, no, the other. Uh, oh, now, oh, she's married. Well, uh, well. Eastern presents the losers. Immature. Nineteen out of twenty <laughs> girls we see never get to be an Eastern Airlines stewardess. They're probably good enough to get a job anywhere they want. But at Eastern, we're very choosy about whom we let serve you on a plane. It may make our job a lot harder but it makes your flying a lot easier. We want everyone to fly. Oh, the girl with the glasses. Uh, no, the, uh, honey, uh, wait, uh, if you...
song it's all right it's okay by dennis waterman i see don has rejoined us now and so take it away don let's see if i can open your microphone and you've got it now go ahead don okay thanks neil i hope we can hear the rest of that song on monday night Uh, (laughs) well today our stories range from the sounds of the aircraft you just heard starting up or simply stating the mail wings from the mail wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisper Liner. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call into the show at 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone Uh, your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk to one of our hosts. So now let's go up to uh, Long Island and uh, uh, host Captain Mike Scott. What do you got for us, Mike? Yeah, Don, uh, now let's uh, sit back and enjoy some great aviation stories, as our producer said, stories written by the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines, stories printed in Repartee and other publications. Uh, Eastern manager Don Gagnon, can we remind our listeners of the great stories that we can still hear and what we did on the last show by going to the radio show's archive or on the website, which is www.ealradioshow.com? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Captain Mike. Uh, in our last episode, we stated, started a three-part series of the interview our producer, Captain Neal, did with Captain Hayson Calloway. It proved to be very interesting, and we have more to come. Too many, who knew, too many of us who knew him, Hayson assumed legendary status over his flying career, and not just with Eastern Airlines. As we will see, he even flew in Area 51 while on contract with Georgia Tech, 
after his eastern retirement. And there is the Lockheed World War II P-38 story. As we share repartee stories, Captain Jim, what have you got for us today? Okay, uh, Don, thank you. Uh, This man, Hanson Calloway, was never dull and always surprising in many respects. He even mentioned me in one of his stories, and I mean, that's an honor, but he's got a had a million stories, it seemed like. But we're going to hear some of them during this series. And today, we're considering continues sharing more stories of the men who flew the eastern skies. We started a three-part series on some of these magnificent men in their flying machines last week. And hey, Mr. Producer, Neil, can you find that music in your musical archives? And if you can, I got it. I got it this time. Talking this again, Captain Hassan <laughs> Calloway. Uh, as Neil has said, he's an Atlanta-based pilot till his questionable retirement, and we'll get into that next week, I think, at the age of 60 years in a few months. And now, Mr. Producer, would you share part two with us? I understand Hanson has referenced me in one of his stories. Well, let's see which one it is, Jim. Here's uh, our part one of uh, um, that's well. I'm gonna shut up too. <laughs> Play it. This is part two of our series uh, interviewing Captain Hassan Calloway. I was the editor of Repartee Magazine, and I chose to interview Hassan at a Sun and Fun event, Fly In, and this was back in 2001. Now I had a question for Hassan, and it goes like this. You mentioned that you had other stories about the DSTs. That was the Eastern Sleeper DC-3 aircraft. Would you care to tell us about one or more of them, Hassan? And Hassan's response. We had a trip that left Atlanta about 10 o'clock that night. The stops were New Orleans, Houston, Brownsville, and then connected with Pan American. It was big time to fly night crawler, as we call them, you know, You had to be very careful with this airplane when you would normally start a rate of descent about 300 to 500 feet per minute. In this airplane, you had to start way out with about 200 feet rate of descent and not do a three-point landing. You just wheel it on nice and easy. One night around Birmingham, level at about 8,000 feet, Frank Bright, an old-time steward, came up and said, Hassan, I'm missing a passenger back here. I swear they were all on when I left. When we left, I asked how the count could be wrong as we only had about 18 people on the plane that night, and he went back to do another head count. Before we got to New Orleans, the co-pilot, Lee Hines, noticed the white light flashing. 
this was a signal from the uh, steward that uh, he wanted to come up and talk with us. Frank came up and said, hey, I found a passenger, Hassan. You're not going to like it, but he's in bed with a gal up on the top bunk, and I can't get them out. They had uh, two bathrooms, bedrooms that were plush even by today's standards. And these passengers had met back in Atlanta. The plane had been configured out of Washington as a sleeper. Then changing into their pajamas, uh, he must have told her that it would be better accommodations in the upper berth. Well, the altitude, the booze, and the Big Bang had got him, and he had passed out. Frank and the co-pilot had to go back and help him get to his own berth. We landed the next morning in Brownsville, Texas, around 8 in the morning, and they got off holding hands, so I guess they made out pretty good. <laughs> Another question I had for Hassan, how many berths did they have on the DST, Hassan? They had 14, seven on each side. When it was configured for the day shift, it would hold 25 people. It was very plush. Editor, that was me. Who were some of the interesting guys you flew with, Hassan? Hassan, well, to start with, there was Harold Huff. Harold would call me Jigger. He would say, hey, Jigger, what are, we, what are we getting, an A or an N signal? I was flying co-pilot with Harold, and we were going into ground, Brownsville, Texas. It was always fogged in the early morning. Harold would say, hey, Jigger, tell me when we go over the palm trees. He would keep letting down when I would say, palm trees. Sure enough, there would be the airport. <laughs> I flew three years and three months as co-pilot and had some very good training. There was Larry Paps, Paul Foster, and Shelley Charles, just to name a few. There were many. Out of uh, Indianapolis, going to Midway Airport, finding a marker at Cedar Lake, Blue Island, and Ketzel, I guess it's called, we had a good rapport with the guys in the tower. They would always give us minimums when the field was down. Chicago never went below the eastern minimums. I recall that after you passed the Kedzie fan marker, you'd turn the volume down real low or high till you were sure. Radio was no good from then on. After that, it was at uh, 1,200 feet turn to a north heading for about 90 seconds, then a standard rate, which was 3 degrees per second turn. And finally, you let down. The reason you were turning was to go around the crackerjack stack. You had two runways, northwest runways, and you would never miss. I flew up there 10 or 11 years and never went to the range station up north. When you would call those lower tower guys and ask them the weather, they would say something like this. It's good. Come on. We're looking for you. Well, that meant it was pretty good. If it was down a little bit, they would say, well, let's think about it. I think it will be okay when you get here. This meant it was about 800 feet. If you got in a little closer, they would say, you'd better uh, look at it a little bit more, meaning it was less than previously mentioned. If it was really that bad, when you asked, they would reply with, I don't know. Let me wipe off, uh, wipe off the tower windows. And you would know just by listening to them what the weather was. 
That would be our first assignment as a captain, to fly up there. I flown from Atlanta to Chicago making five stops and never have enough collective for it to be VFR at any time. In the 50s, when the Martin came to Houston, nothing had changed on the airliners, airlines for 15 years. My number stayed at 165 on, on the seniority list. And nobody died, nobody got killed, and nobody quit. I stayed stagnant at 165. It seemed forever. The big event for that decade was the closing of Bowman Field and moving over to Stanford in Louisville, Kentucky. It wasn't that big a deal, but we got a memo saying we had to make seven link trainer approaches and draw all the maps and show where the Dobbs house was. Then we'd have a briefing by the check pilot. This was the big event. Everybody was looking forward to it. We had a guy named Babe Myth. Now, I've changed the name a little bit. Uh, old Babe's still around. Babe was a brilliant idiot. He wore glasses that had lens like two Coke bottles. Everything he did was with a slider. I even think he uh, he did the big ones and uh, twos with the slide rule. He was absolutely a nut. Brilliant, but with no common sense. When he was constipated, he worked it out with a pencil. Babe came out about 7 o'clock, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning to go to Chicago. But he landed at Bowman Field. The field closed at midnight. It was an illegal airport, and they couldn't do it. They had to get a bus and haul all the people over to Stanford, then get a ferry permit to fly the airplane over and then on to Chicago. That afternoon, Act 1, Scene 2, Dave, coming back from Chicago, lands at Bowman again. Now remember, Bowman has been closed. They should have retained the bus and the ferry permit to fly the airplane over to Stanford. Furman Stone, my boss, who I love more than anything, called Babe on the carpet the next morning and said, Babe, how in the hell could you have landed at the wrong airport twice in the same day? I could understand once, but twice in the same day? Babe replied, Well, Captain Stone, I was about 20 miles out and checking in while I was cleaning my glasses. Furman cut him short and said, Babe, you lying son of a bitch, how could you clean your glasses with your head up your ass? They made him a check pilot to keep him out of trouble. There were others, but we don't have time or enough tape to go into them. Now, I asked Hassan, you told me about Max, the border collie that flew with you on occasion. What's that all about, Hassan? Yes, Max is about six or seven years old now. I've got pictures of Max that I'll show you. You can't get into my airplane without Max getting in with you. You know how most dogs, uh, when you get in your car, they'll want to jump in too. Well, when you go for the airplane, Max will act the same way. He'll follow you down the taxi strip if he sees you in the plane, and you'll have to stop and let him in. I take him flying a lot, and after we get up, he goes to sleep. If you make any power changes, he, he comes awake. After he gets in the airplane, he'll lean over and kiss me. 
I tell everyone this is how he passes his biennial. He's got a log block, a log book, you know. I gave him an instrument check, and he flies pretty well, but he has trouble with the clearances. Once we landed in Gainesville, Georgia, and Max was in the right seat. Oh, Jim Holder was there and saw the airplane, made the smoothest landing that it has ever made. He said that he knew it wasn't Hassan flying, and it had to be somebody else with me. When we taxied in, he saw Max sitting in the left seat. After we got out and stayed a while, Max was so tired of meeting all the people, he jumped into the right seat, wanting me to fly back home. <laughs> wow. Yes. That's I remember Hanson and his dog, Max. Uh, yeah. I, I, they had a fly-in up at Gainesville, as Neil said. It was on July the 7th, 2001, according to my logbook. And I got up there early because they wanted me to help park airplanes, you know how it goes is. And I saw this red and white 150 come flying in, and I got went out there with a little follow me sign or whatever, and I got them all parked. and went over there, and there was Hanson Callaway sitting there. Actually, he was in the left seat, and Max was in the right seat. He liked to fly in the right seat also, I guess. And I took a picture of him, and he just sitting there <laughs> grinning at me. Boy, he'd never been to Gainesville, I guess, and he was proud of it. And I had that picture, I actually had that picture in the winter of 2005 Repartee magazine. Everybody got to see Hanson with old Max. And a matter <laughs> of fact, I liked it so much in my first PowerPoint presentation in 2006, at the time goes by, Chattanooka, I had that picture and it said, I have to do everything. That's Max with a balloon. I have to do everything. <laughs> and I can tell you, after flying with Hanson hundreds and hundreds of hours on the 727, easily more hours with Hanson than any other eastern captain, most of the West Coast, I could not agree. I would agree with Max 100% because I had to do everything there, too. He treated me <laughs> just like he did the dog Max, made us do all the work. I miss old Hanson. Well, well, Mike, uh, how about uh, taking this to the next one? Yeah, also, when, according to the last uh, stint you had there, it just sounded like the DC-3 had other anemones uh, of the DC-3 Eastern Douglas, which included the sleeping berths, the early DSTs, the Douglas Sleeper Transport, the, the, the models that they had. And an in-flight kitchen also was in, included in that. Mr. Petusa, did you ever call Hassan a jigger? No, I didn't. I never called him Jigger. Uh, do you remember calling him or hearing him being called Jigger or Jim Holder? No, that's a new one on me. I thought I'd heard everything about a handsome, but I never heard that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that was reserved only for uh, Howard, uh, uh, the Captain Hub. Okay. Yeah, and uh, right. oh, I wonder, I wonder if it's still done today. This landing at the wrong airport. I haven't heard any news about this happening. Have you guys? No, no, <laughs> not in- unintentionally. <laughs> uh, how about almost? That doesn't count, does it? Almost. Well, I was thinking about a guy down at my airport. Uh, Southern Lakes, and he took off in his airplane and flew around a while and was going to come back and land, but he ran out of gas and had to land on the interstate. <laughs> oh, he oh, didn't intend oh. to, but he had to, you know what I mean? Yeah, run, <laughs> runway interstate. Yeah, huh? He's still trying mm-hmm. to get that one, get, get that yeah. out of everybody's memory. He called it holy hell for it. 
Well, I was flying from uh, Phoenix to Tucson, and and uh, you ceiling invisibility was on a limit. It was you could see the mountain way down south of Mexico City, I believe, that night. Every star, I mean, it, they were just as bright as they could be. And here I am at night uh, flying into Tucson. And I'd been to Tucson before, but somehow I just decided that uh, I wanted to land at uh, Davis Montham. Airport, uh, just which is just a little bit north of, and lined up exactly. Those runways are almost exactly lined up, the north-south runways. And uh, here I was uh, letting down, and I already been cleared to a lower altitude, letting down, and I was about ready to call out gear down and flaps, uh, full flaps. And and the, the first officer says, uh, "Are you sure you want to land here?" <laughs> and he pointed beyond davis Montham, and there was Tucson, of course, sitting just a little bit south. But uh, that saved me that night. Thank goodness I forgot who the first officer was. But uh, almost, almost. Okay, Jim. Uh, oh, we already talked about that. Mike, I'm going to yeah. turn. Yeah, Mike, you got a little uh, background echo, but we'll see if we can work it out. Go ahead. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've, when we were VFR and we uh, canceled IFR, going into uh, El Paso one time, the Air Force Base and the civil, civil civilian airport is the runways are lined up perfectly, and the airports are right next to each other. So yeah. you get a little confused there, and also up in uh, Spokane, Washington, the same thing. Uh, the civilian and the military airport. Yeah. If you don't watch yourself, you don't. You can. Uh, Get yourself lined up. Get a little too complacent. They used to years ago. ago, You remember? remember Used to land at Opalata, thinking that it was Miami. Miami. I think we had some Eastern captains that did that. that. I think you're right. Yeah. How's the phone? Do I need to call back? No, no, you're all right. Hey, Don, take us into the next one. Um, what are we doing now, Neil? It's well, I believe it's, it's P38. Yeah, P38. That was a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Don, when you get your place, uh, I'm going to go ahead and run the second I've got it now. story. The P-38 is on the next reading, so it sure sounds like a uh, fiction, but what have you told us? Call us. Call a roll. Here we go. Here we go. This is part two. This is part two. Uh, Hessen, while we were going down the flight line here at Sun and Fun, Eston Fuller told you to be sure to tell me about the P-38 story. We've got time on this tape if you'd like to tell us, Hassan. Oh, yes. That was a weird thing, and it was in Ripley's Believe It or Not. There are more facets in it than you can ever imagine. But in 1946, I was picking up airplanes from places like Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Augusta, Georgia, and other places where Eastern was buying military surplus aircraft, DC-3s and DC-4s. The company paid about 15% down, and 
they went um, and and they they sent Bishop Simpson and some of the guys over to work on them. They were never ready when you got there. Eastern had three Stinson Reliant airplanes. I never got pushed back to reserve, but I got pushed to the Stinson, getting the same DC-3 pay. George Griner and I were the ferry pilots for these airplanes that Eastern would purchase. We would take it time and about, and I would go over and get a DC-3 and take it to Trans-Canada or somewhere, and George would fly the Stinson back home, and next week he would fly the DC-3, and I would fly the Stinson back home. One day I was picking up a DC-3. It was a gorgeous airplane, configured inside as an executive airplane with olive drab paint outside. It had a big star on the outside, which meant it belonged to a general while in service. My contribution was to take $7,000 to get the airplane out of Hawk. The company had already sent over about 700, so the airplane came out of there for about $8,000. I'd been over there many times before and would come out with the baskets of altimeters, clocks, and other stuff. One day, when the one day this guy came over to me and said, I've got just the airplane for you. I asked him to tell me about it, and he, and he said it was a P-38. I told him I needed one of those real bad. I mean, I could use one of the engines as an anchor if I had a boat. If I had an airport, I could have used the fuselage for a wind, wind tee. He said he was serious and said they had some nice ones in the pool of airplanes they stored. I told him I had no money, and he asked if I had $20 for a deposit. I told him yes, and he said that I could not refuse this airplane. It was brand new. One had only 27 hours on it and had been flown by Lockheed test pilots. The Air Corps had flown the aircraft to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and put it in storage. It had 1,056 gallons of gas in it. I got the manual out of the airplane, checked into a hotel, and read it, and then I flew back to Atlanta uh, on a commercial and told George to take me back over to Pine Bluff and the Stinson. I had read the manual, and I gave myself a thorough 45-minute checkout in the cockpit, and then I flew it back to Atlanta, not knowing what to do with it once I got to Atlanta. I put it in the eastern hangar. Furman Stone came out and said, What in the hell is that airplane doing in the hangar? Whose is it? I told him it was mine, and he said, You can't keep it here. I, I said, You want to fly it, Furman? Uh, yeah, Furman said. He got in, and I stood on the wing and gave him a checkout. He flew the airplane, and from then on, I didn't have any problem keeping the airplane in the eastern hangar. Well, the Bendix Air Race was coming up around Labor Day in 1946, so I decided to try my luck in the race. The flight out was pretty interesting. I landed in Kansas City and spent the night. The next morning, there was an overcast at about seven or 800 feet with the tops at about 20,000. I climbed out and headed west, getting on top around 25,000 feet. It was a beautiful day with the morning sun behind me. I was on top for an hour or so, and then the overcast ran out just east of Tuba City, which is the east end of the Grand Canyon. 
There with that beautiful sky and that gorgeous canyon open below me, the temptation was just too great. I went down and dusted out the canyon. <laughs> From there, I went over to Van Nuys where they, yeah, they got me for speeding into the traffic pattern. They had a limit there, which I didn't know. As I went in at about 300 miles an hour, and I was supposed to have been doing no more than 240. I stayed there for about a week before the races began. While there, I ran into an old captain friend of mine by the name of Larry McGee. Larry McGahey, it should be. Larry had moved out to California. He helped me get the airplane ready. When I ran the Bendix in 1946, I was an also-ran. I knew I had bought the wrong airplane. I should have bought, could have bought a P-51 for probably the same price. Now, after the race was over at Cleveland, a guy from Bendix who had seen me in the Bendix race came in, uh, came over to me and said, you're not doing too so well at racing and we're, we're doing some experimenting with landing gears that we, that we have. Would you be interested? I told him I would, and I signed on with Bendix and did some gear tests for them. I kept the airplane there about a year and did pretty well with it. I put a couple of hundred hours in the airplane for them, I guess. I brought, I brought the airplane back to Atlanta, and I couldn't sleep at it. I couldn't keep it in the hangar, so I kept it outside, and it collected a lot of dust. I had a friend who ran an FBO in Peru, Indiana, who called me and asked what I was going to do with a P-38. I told him it was sitting behind the hangar collecting dust, so he asked if I could bring it up, and he would put it in condition to sell it for me. I flew it up to Peru, and my friend and I got it ready to sell. I had forgotten about it, about it, and time passed by until one day, while I was flying a DC-4 sequence out of Atlanta to Boston, I was in Knoxville visiting my family when I heard on the news that Eastern had had a tragedy at Washington National Airport with a military airplane. Well, it never dawned on me. It just didn't ring a bell at all. Nothing to enlighten the thing up. I came back to Atlanta, changed clothes, and flew my trip. I went to Charlotte and then to Washington where I, I saw all this mess at the end of the runway three. I didn't think further about it and went on to New York and then to Boston. Right around 8 o'clock uh, or 9 o'clock that night, I got a call from commentator Drew Pearson. Pearson says, is your name Captain Hassan Calloway? I said, yes. He said, did you own a P-38? I told him, yes, I had owned one. He was very sarcastic and said, Did you know, Captain, that your company had a very bad accident down in Washington yesterday? That was November 1st, 1949, a Douglas DC-4, tail number N88727. I told him that I did know about it, and then he asked what my racing number was. I told him that it was number 48. He said, Well, Captain... How do you account for the fact that when they pull this airplane out of the swamp up there, it has your name all over it? It did indeed have my name, Hassan Calloway, Eastern Airlines, Atlanta, Georgia, written right on the nose of the airplane. I told him I didn't know, but for him to call me back in about an hour, and then I called Walter and asked, 
him how we were financially. He told me that we were all right and that the airplane had been sold to a Bolivian pilot who had bought the P-38, a P-63, and something else. George Ray was a captain of the Eastern DC-4, and George was one day ahead of me on the sequence. How ironic it would have been if it had been if it had happened a day earlier, and I was the captain because it was my sequence, and I had it had been knocked out of the sky by my own airplane. Fortunately for me, it didn't happen. All 55 people aboard the airplane were killed. Half the airplane crashed at National Airport, and the rest fell into the swamp right at the threshold of runway three. The pilot in the P-38 didn't hit the DC-4 head-on, but must have pulled it up at the last minute and mushed through it, hitting it at just about the loading door. The airplane actually broke and fell into two pieces. The Bolivian pilot went in flat in the P-38 and was seriously injured, but actually lived. The irony of this was that it was about the time that the tower started to record tape messages from the pilots. A strange thing happened to this tape. It was lost. Eastern was completely absolved of the accident. You know how you go up the river north and then you turn northwest and and then back to the northeast to land on runway three? This guy was out over Arlington in the P-38 and he was buzzing the airport. That's what he was doing when he struck the, D, the eastern DC-4 airplane. This actually got into Ripley's, believe it or not. I don't know the issue, but I saw it under some title like, Can You Imagine This? Or Can You Top This? Or something like that. I believe this happened November 1st, 1949. I've got to get into my computer and see if I can find it among aircraft accident topics. It must be in there somewhere. I'm not all that good at finding things in on the Internet. Wow, what a story. Sure was. Yeah, you know, we had several Eastern pilots back then. Those days that were buying these World War II airplanes very cheaply. One yeah. guy bought a Stearman for only $400 a piece, still in the crates. I'd imagine That's what true. would that be worth now. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. 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 Mike? Mike? Yeah, well, we had uh, another question here of the landing at the wrong airport, which we kind of hashed over before. But uh, it says, uh, I like the response of the chief pilot about how he could wipe his glasses if his head was still up his, well, you know what we mean. <laughs> when, I went to, when I went to work for Easton, I was based in Chicago flying to DC-7. And we went into Stanford, and it seemed like about the first year, every time we went into Stanford, a different captain was flying, and he also told me that story. You don't know how many times I had to listen to that story about having his glass, wiping his glasses. He said, co-pilot was flying, apparently, and he wasn't paying attention to wiping his glasses. It was like something that, oh, I hadn't flown with this guy before. Is he going to tell me the story? Sure enough, later on, I'd get that story again. Well, you know, uh, the captain's joke. Yeah, when uh, Hassan told the story, 
he said that he wanted to change the name because Dave Smith was still alive then. And I said, well, what do you want to use instead, Hassan? He said, well, how about uh, Babe uh, Myth? And I said, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> and so we used that name. But uh, both of them, of course, yeah. passed away years ago. Oh, and, yeah, uh, years interesting, ago. Interesting how old Babe landed at the same airport twice, the wrong airport. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, let's listen to this last one here, and uh, then we'll have a little bit of Reaper chat. And uh, been very interesting. I think you'll like this last uh, part here, uh, part three. Hassan, you flew for Georgia Tech for a while after you left Eastern. Can you tell us what type of flying you did for Tech, Hassan? Yes, Neil. There is life after Eastern. 13 years with Georgia Tech. I flew a Convert 240 and 340 while at Tech. Tech had a contract to fly special missions for the government, and I flew these for nearly 13 years. When we flew these, they would have an absolutely sterile area where we would park the airplane. When you got out of the airplane, guards would come over and put a sticker over the door. If you had to go back out to the airplane for something, you had to sign forms before going back. EGG Corporation ran the operation, and they also ran the operation at Area 51. You know, the UFO area. We weren't supposed to land up there, and you had to have a code to get in. There was a monitor right outside the entrance called Mercury, and you would file a flight plan to Mercury to hold for two or three hours. We would go to Mercury, get the clearance to go into Area 51, and then we'd come back, pick up our flight plan, and fly back to Nellis Air Force Base or McCarran Air Force Base. In good weather, I would go up in about 45 minutes, but if the weather was bad, there were some mountains that I would have to go around. I would fly to go from McCarran to Mercury, then to hold a couple of hours, pick up my clearance, and go back to McCarran. All they would have was a flight of 45 minutes on ATC records. One day I left Nellis and went into McCarran. I was gone about five hours, but our flight plan was from Nellis to McCarran. When I landed, the ground flight operator said, the aircraft commander just landed a convoy over over here. Something ain't exactly right. It took him about five hours to go from Nellis to McCarran. When I got ready to come back, I had to file a flight plan with the amount of gas, and he asked how long it was going to take us to get back. When I told him about six or seven minutes, he was really confused. Before we ever left Atlanta, there was a program called Fiber Optics Guided Missile, or FOGM, that a fellow had built over at Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. The guy was a doctor, a Ph.D. type, and he built this thing in his basement. It was about 12 feet long and about 10 inches in diameter. It had two big old ugly eyes on it. One was an infrared, the other a video. I got the world's record for laying out the most fishing line over Alabama or anywhere. It was a a fish line fog and fiber optics guided missile. The reason we got it was that they had tried to 
uh, tried it on a helicopter first and found that the helicopter was too small and shaky a platform. Then they tried it on a King Air and there wasn't enough room. They hired us, Georgia Tech that is, because we had the room and the speed. It was a slow flow glow missile. Only about 195 miles per hour with the Convair, we could get it uh, up to that speed. The idea of this thing was that it would come out in a six-pack. It would adjust to any angle you wanted. It would come up over the hills and down the other side, and it would take over and follow the ground at about a 50-foot level. Well, I couldn't do the whoop-de-do, but uh, we could pick them up theoretically after that. A guy sitting in an air-conditioned Hummer-like vehicle guided me. The fiber optics came out of a reel in the tail of the airplane. It was about 17 miles long. He would guide me to seek out uh, tanks, helicopters, and that sort of thing. It was extremely sensitive and seemed to me that it was about four or five meters on each side of a center line. The runs were uh, always short at about 12 or 16 miles long. You couldn't bank the airplane and would have to skid the airplane to stay on the course. They would track it like the old trackers on the link trainers we we used to use. We we would do about 12 or 14 runs, and after about two, it looked like one track, and you could stay right on it if you were very careful. Now, as the editor, I ask Hassan, now, you are, you're telling me this was a small fish line? What was the diameter, Hassan? Hassan, about the size of a hair. It was like a leader line on a fishing line. It took about a half a day to clean it up, and, and after we dropped it out, it was, I was always tearing up everything. Redstone is geographically very close. It's about seven or eight miles wide and 12 or 15 miles long. They had restricted areas within the restricted areas. Well, I, I couldn't contain the convoy in just that area and was always getting called in for going over some important buildings or the FBI firing range or somewhere I didn't belong. We're kind of getting this thing out of sequence here. The conveyors were pretty good for transporting drugs out of South America, and what we had on board was extremely sensitive. First, we went up to Griffiths Air Force Base, loaded this stuff in New York, and came back to Atlanta. Then we went down to San Antonio to start our, our first project. Jim Moore, an ex-EAL flight engineer, and I were flying when we got a phone call telling us that when we got down to El Paso, we were going to have a visitor because the FBI wanted to come and come out and, and look at our airplane. Sure enough, when we landed, the security guy who wore a big Texas hat with the same size mustache and a gun on his belt came out to us with this guy in plain clothes. On board, we had this missile that we had to put a blanket on every time we left the airplane which was parked in a sterile area whenever we, wherever we were. The guy came up to me and said, we want to come aboard. I told him we were classified and that he couldn't come aboard. The fellow told me he would, 
could could and walked around me and was going up the steps when our armed army guard, who always traveled with us, met him about halfway. The guy showed him his gun and his FBI identification, and our guard said, I'm sorry, that isn't good enough. He never did go aboard. Toward the end of my employment with Georgia Tech, my co-pilot, Jim Moore, died. I searched around and hired an Eastern captain to fly with me, and this was about the worst-case scenario. Two captains flying the same airplane. He kept saying that this aircraft was going to kill us because of the poor maintenance it got. He was almost right about that. I saw the writing on the on the wall and told some of the other fellows to go and find themselves good jobs as it wouldn't last much longer. You know, I had forgotten all about Jim Moore, but uh, after doing this recording and uh, hearing about Jim, I remembered that uh, I flew a trip with Hassan one time, and uh, I operated along with my partner, John Corni, who was killed in our airplane uh, in 1971, and we operated a, a school out at uh, Fulton County Airport, Charlie Brown Airport, and we had a steerman there, 1935 Mike, and uh, we were also teaching ground school. And our ground school consisted of uh, the airline transport pilot rating and other uh, other ratings, but the ground portion only. And then we decided to see if we could get an air agency certificate from the FAA to teach larger airplanes. And uh, the first airplane we decided we would teach was a DC-7. Eastern had DC-7s back in those days. And and uh, we wanted to have someone that would teach it for us. And I told Hassan about this. And Hassan said, well, you know, I've got a good friend. His name is uh, is uh, Jim Moore. And he's an ex-Eastern flight, flight engineer that went out on the strike. And, um, and uh, he's out of work. And you might want to check in with him to see if he could teach it for you. Well, to make a long story short, uh, I checked with Jim uh, he came out to Charlie Brown, talked to John and I, and we hired him. And uh, the FAA came out and monitored a class on the DC-7 uh, for the flight engineer rating. That's what we were teaching because at that time, the airlines wanted folks that had a flight engineer rating back in the 60s. And so Jim talked with, uh, with us for uh, about a year and a half, I guess, and he was also, I think, the captain or the first officer on the uh, Atlanta Sky, Skylark airplane, the Travel Club airplane. And But he also maintained our steerman. Uh, he did the annual for it, and uh, he had done the annual and, and passed away about that time, like uh, Hassan said on the tape. And uh, John was killed shortly after that. And, of course, it was nothing wrong with the airplane far as maintenance wise it, it was just an accident but that's the story and and uh interesting how well Neil uh, yeah uh Jim Moore B.W. Wilmoth my good friend and buddy bought a Cessna 170 in 66 and we kept it till 68 kept it two years and Jim Moore did the annuals for us on that airplane 
Oh, okay. He was a really nice guy, super nice guy. Real nice, yeah. Very, very nice. Yeah, his wife, we met met her. And and, uh, from that point, from the DC-7, we were approved for... uh, for that airplane by the FAA to teach ground school on it. And, and uh, the word got out, uh, I think it was Paul Shemsky who also worked for us, that uh, Allegheny Airlines was uh, looking for someone to teach ground school for the 727. And, of course, we sent a letter, uh, a proposal to teach their classes. So we taught the first, very first classes with uh, Allegheny Airline up in Pittsburgh. And... Uh, and the 727 flight engineer course. So uh, from that point on, we did a couple of other transports um, besides that turboprop and that turbojet and the reciprocating flight engineer courses. I'm going to open Mike's microphone there. There you go. Mike? Mike? Yeah, let's see here. For our hosts, I hope we have more of these uh, great uh, interviews for uh, Captain Hassan Holloway coming up. <laughs> I like the way you change it around to Captain Holloway. I like that. Uh, yeah, we do. We have uh, one more part to do, part three, and it'll have three sequences. And I think you'll really enjoy it, especially the one where Hassan flies a 727 and uh, uses the rear stairs. I think it was the rear stairs uh, for a parachute club. All nudist parachutists. Nudist parachutists. You'll hear all about that on our next, uh, on our next program. It is funny. Gonna, it's a little, you're a little drifty, I, 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 I want to hear that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talk, talk about some fuzzy dice. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> okay, well, that's all we've got for you today, and uh, we'll be back again next Thursday. Don, how about checking this out? All right, okay. Our, our sign-off music, I think, is playing in the background. So we'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee mm. and bring you the conclusion of an interview with Captain Hayson Calloway, printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilot Association. And remember, the EAO radio show this Monday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, when we bring you music we enjoyed and music history of Eastern in the 1980 decade. That's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, www.ealradioshow.com, you'll find many more great Eastern stories and memories. So it's time to say so long. And on behalf of all of our hosts and our producer, Captain Neil Holland, this is Don Gagnon saying so long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family and friends. We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. So long, Eastern. Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you, you, Neil. Neil. It was a good show, Neil. Ah, I enjoyed it. Good job. Shining in the sun.
they're taking you away, leaving me lonely, silver wings, slowly fading out of sight.